Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and as always, it's a pleasure to have you here with me today. Okay, today in this episode, I am joined by uh, my long-term esteemed colleague, Bernie Clark. Bernie is really one of the premier yin yoga teachers alive right now, and he has written beautiful books about the practice of yin yoga, specifically a book called Yin Sights, and more recently, The Complete Guide to Yin Yoga. He's also written voluminously about anatomy and how our unique skeletal shapes, in particular, influence how we're able to do poses. So he's he's really uh, a, a leading figure uh, in the yoga community. But today, we're not really going to be talking about yoga. Um, as you'll hear, Bernie has also written a book that is about to be re-released in the beginning of January. And the re-release title is different from its original title. The original title of this book is From the Gita to the Grail, What Yoga Stories and Western Myths Tell Us About Ourselves. The, his publisher is, is um, updating the, the republished version with a new title called Shiva Dancing at King Arthur's Court. And this book is really a broad overview of stories from East and West, specifically mythical stories from East and West. And Bernie, in his unique, inimitable way, both unpacks the meanings of these stories and juxtaposes these stories in conversation to each other. And I think the overall effect, and this was my experience with the book, was that it really gives you a much broader, comprehensive sense of the collective ways that humans have tried to make meaning out of the experience of life. And um, in exposing oneself and, and you know, diving in and engaging with these stories, my hope in sharing this conversation is that you, the listener, and us collectively can hopefully start to imagine a new story, a new story both for ourselves and a new story for our species. Um, and as I start speaking about that, I think about this conversation in context with two other conversations that are being uh, released in the podcast at this season. So the week prior to this publishing, uh, last week's episode, was a conversation I had with my friend Howie Axelrod about his book, The Stars in Our Pockets, which is looking at how our capacities related to attention and how capacities related to attention like compassion, empathy, patience, meaning, under self-knowledge or self-awareness, how all of these capacities are actually under threat as a result of sort of the rapid transformation of our culture due to technological development, specifically digitization, how the digital world is, an, is effectively creating a kind of inner climate change and how he gets into what we can all do about that. Um, but this is sort of, I see that conversation as framing the conversation I have today with Bernie around meaning in general. And so without a, without our attention span, without a good capacity to pay attention to things, specifically to our life and the stories that shape our life, um, we kind of lose our rudder in terms of how we're navigating things. So I'm hoping today inspires you to pick up this book, uh, which will be republished in January as Shiva Dancing at King Arthur's Court. 
as a way to um, refresh your sense of your own story and maybe get you thinking about our collective story that we can share together. And as the, and this conversation will then lead into next week's published conversation that I had with my friend Robert Wright, who I've had an ongoing series of conversations with, but in, in this particular one that I'll be releasing next week, I get Bob, uh, to, as you'll hear, to share really his, old, his whole entire worldview in one sitting, which I think brings a sense of divine awe, or just kind of a, a transcendent kind of awe to the fact of our existence, to the sweep of evolution and all the products and experiences that are arise due to evolution. And in understanding it, particularly through Bob's lens, we can have a real deep appreciation for the very fact that we're conscious at all. The fact that we have something that it's like to be us is a mystery. And when we really contemplate the depth of that mystery, it can awaken a sense of divine awe just at, for life in general. So I'm hoping that as we go into the winter season, the, si the season of introspection and rest, hopefully, um, I'm hoping these conversations help nourish and even regenerate a sense of appreciation for the sublime in everyday life. So it always comes back to the everyday sublime. So just briefly, uh, today's conversation, to get a sense of where we're going, today's conversation with Bernie, will we, we cover... Uh, Everything in his book, or main themes of his book, which include discussion around Joseph Campbell and how Joseph Campbell, if you're not familiar with him, was a very influential comparative mythologist uh, in the 20th century. And uh, we talk about how uh, what Campbell's sense of the four functions of myths are. So Bernie talks about the four functions of myths. And then at, at a point we get into how we can think about using these myths to look into kind of the, the, the polarizing tribalistic dynamics that are at play in our, in our world and our society right now. And from there, uh, Bernie speaks about the hierarchy of credibility, as well as some of the writing he's done about logical fallacies. And I just want you to know in advance that there's a few uh, articles that Bernie has written that will be linked to in the show notes. So if you hear something that sounds of interest to you um, and it's outside the scope of his new book or the, the republishing of Shiva dancing at King Arthur's court, uh, you can look in the show notes and you'll see uh, I've included links for the articles that we mentioned. So just real quickly before I give you today's episode, which is a long one, and I would recommend breaking it up over a few sittings or a few walks or a few uh, just sessions. Um, the, these final episodes of this year are going to be a bit longer. As I joke, they're kind of Joe Rogan level or Joe Rogan length. Um, but before I give you the episode, just want to say um, your help in supporting the podcast is invaluable. So if you enjoy this content, if you appreciate this conversation or the conversations and content that I share here, please consider supporting the podcast. One of the easiest ways you can do that is to share an episode with a friend or in your in your networks. So just sharing an episode goes a long way. You can rate and review us in an Apple podcast uh, app. You can, in any of the apps that you use, you can rate and review us. And if you're interested in, in stepping up a little bit more and providing some real material support to the work we're doing, consider taking a class. Um, Terry and I, my partner and I, teach four classes a week, a meditation, a yin yoga and qigong class, a yin yoga class, and a 
uh, Yang Yoga class. All these classes are offered live over Zoom, and if you're not able to attend over Zoom for the live session, you will have access to this class as a recording. Um, for if you pay for a pay as a per class drop-in, you'll have the recording for 48 hours. But if you're a member in our practice community called the Riverbird Sangha, you'll have lifetime access to that recording in our library. And there's mem there's in information in the show notes about how you might join the Sangha if you'd like to practice along with us. So please consider short supporting the podcast. We really appreciate it. We rely on it. And we thank you in advance for your support and help. Now, without further ado, I once again bring you Bernie Clark. Okay, so today I am back with Bernie Clark. Bernie, great to see you again. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. You're our, our the most esteemed guest on the show. You, you've been the most uh, consistent guest to come to come back and return. I'm great, great to have you here again today. Well, thanks for the invite, Josh. It's great to be back. Yeah. Um, so to set up our conversation today, I, I thought I would give the audience a sense of how we came to the conversation. Um, in the past, uh, as probably many people that are listening know, you are uh, a leading figure in the yin yoga community, and you've written voluminously about the yin yoga practice in two, two wonderful books, Yin Sites and The Complete Guide to Yin Yoga. And then you've expanded everyone's knowledge about anatomy, and particularly uh, the unique role that human variation plays in how we think about executing or taking shape in postures. And you've written this and just completed, I think, your third installment of your trilogy, that your, 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 the Your Body, Your Yoga trilogy. And the, and the third one is called Your Upper Body, Your Yoga. And you, as you said to me just before the call started, um, this is due out on January 25th of 2022, right? Correct. It's available for pre-orders now, but that's when it should hit the stores. Okay, and it's correct. an awkward title, but it kind of fit with the whole trilogy. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I think I can even imagine another edition down the road when the when the, when the box set of these three books comes yes. out. Like it's Your Body, Your Yoga, Volume One, yeah. Volume Two, Volume Three. But it's, yeah. I, you know, I, I I just want to say before we get into the topic of today, uh, just hats off to you. Uh, that is, I, I I know other people feel this way, but what you've achieved in these this trilogy and the other books you've written is just a monumental contribution to. I think everybody's working knowledge about how to think about teaching and coming into poses and how to, how to, how to customize that for individuals. And it's just, it's a breathtaking degree of, of specificity and knowledge that you've gathered and collated together in these books that, like I said, last time we talked about, I don't know how you do it. It, it seems superhuman to me, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks Josh. That's very kind of you. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, so I know I wanted to get you on the back in the podcast this year, and I think I was going to reach out to you. And then it, I think you reached out to me initially after listening, you heard a bit of a talk I gave on my, in, in the, in the Sangha that I teach. And I was speaking a little bit about how I had been watching a series of lectures that Joseph Campbell had given, I think probably in the eighties or, or late seventies or whenever it, many decades ago, right. <laughs> given this, this, this series that's now on Amazon called Mythos. And um, he was 
what caught my attention in one of those talks was how he was quoting an article from I think foreign affairs about how without a an, or an organizing myth, um, societies go into the disrepair or, or dissolution. And 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 that when he said that, in, initially I felt con, like rooted in our current moment. You know, that mm-hmm. looking around, that the world seems to be um, coming apart at the hinges in a way, and. And it, and in listening to Campbell many years now later, it to me I felt like I heard sort of a, a prediction for this dissolution. You know, without a in our modern society, we don't have a, a really cohesive myth in the way that we did in, in many years in the past, and um, and as a result, it seems like we're we're suffering the the consequences of not having this organizing myth. So you you had. Um, you heard that the little bit that I went on about and um, you reached out and said, and re- and you reminded me that you had written a book, which I had kind of forgotten about. You had written this a whole other book that had nothing to do with yin yoga directly, but it was a, a book called, uh, where is it? The, From the Gita to the Grail. And, right. and it looks at myths found in the East and West and how they speak to, I, I would say the human condition. Um, and, and I hadn't, I think I knew about that book when it came out, but there was something about the title. And I, I say this in full transparency, there's something in the title. I thought, Oh, that's probably Bernie just sharing his love of stories. You know, there's, there's some, there's a way that I thought, Oh, this isn't going to be as deep as I want it to be. And I'll just, that's, that's the one book I don't get, but you sent it to me uh, very kindly of you. You sent me a copy and, and I was humbled because I realized a, you would, you'd studied very deeply of, of Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung and, you were really speaking to these stories and, and getting these stories in a way to have a conversation dialogue with each other. And in a way, trying to point out how I think what you might be getting at is how a modern person can familiarize themselves with these stories and in a sense, be in a better position to maybe create a working myth for themselves or even more of a, a working myth for others that could, speaks to our modern moment. I may be reading too deeply into that <laughs> or hoping too much into that right now, but um, that's how we got going. And then as we got closer to the, t- the call, I think you, you suggested that uh, in talking about what Campbell described as the four functions of myth, uh, we might be able to use some of the myths you talked about in the book as a way to shed light on current problems current and particularly the current problem of societal polarization mm-hmm. does that sound like an accurate setup yeah you're right in the last eight years of my life i've been completely immersed in anatomy and human skeletal variations and things like that but for the decades prior to that i was a, a huge follower of joseph campbell um, i regret i never got to meet the man he died in 1986 but uh, his, his works greatly influenced me, as did Carl Jung. And my book, From the Gita to the Grail, which is actually going to be reissued next year as a paperback version called Shiva Dancing at King Arthur's Court. <laughs> the, uh, the publisher thought it would be a more uh, descriptive title. A zippier um, title. It has more zip to it. Yeah, yeah. And so we got Shiva Dancing at King Arthur's Court. But it was an attempt to, to build a bridge between Eastern and Western views of myth. And especially from a yogic point of view, how could a yogi today 
understand what does Shiva dancing on a dwarf named Avijan mean? Because, you know, an accountant in Toronto would have no, no idea. We didn't grow up with these images. And so, you know, for a decade or more, I really immersed myself into these, these thinkings and philosophies and stories and how it became psychology and the depth psychology of you and others. <clears throat> and you're right, I think Campbell has a lot to offer today in what's happening with society and how the barriers are going up, uh, becoming more bounded instead of less bounded. I think though, when I talk about Campbell in some of my classes, I will, during Yin, as you know, in the Yin class, there's lots of time. There's time to share or there's time just to be quiet. So often about once a month, I will share stories, which I'll take from various teachers, including Joseph Campbell. But today when I mention Joseph Campbell, most people have no idea who I'm talking about. He was, I think, well known for people who grew up in the 60s and 70s, but today he's a bit of ancient history. But he was an American born in White Plains, New York in 1904, grew up falling in love with the, uh, the myths of the Native Americans around him and used to see Wild Bill Hickok's show when it came to New York. And so he grew up with his love of myth and then went to Europe and started to learn more. And on one of his crossings, in those days it was by boat, he met uh, uh, Krishnamurti, Jadu Krishnamurti, who gave him a book. And this book was about the Buddha. And Campbell had only been into European mythology. This was the first time he saw anything about Eastern mythology. And this just opened up a whole new avenue in his, his life. And that's when he started to look around at the world mythologies. And he started to find these, these trends that repeated themselves. Wherever you looked, these ancient myths all seemed to have things in common. Now, today, a lot of mythologists look back on Campbell's work and think that there's a lot of things wrong with it. He passed in 1986 at the age of 82. So, you know, we've learned a lot more in the last 30 or 40 years. But I still think that his teachings resonate with us today because he comes close to touching some of those archetypes. And as you mentioned, he said that there's four great functions of mythology, which he got from his teachers. So, Maybe yeah. we could spend a bit of time talking about that. I, th I think we should talk about that too. Yeah, and, and maybe just as a another point to just mention at the beginning, um, you know, my in my own education at university, I, I, I was actually, in, looking back, I was definitely inspired by Joseph Campbell. I remember in high school, he when I was in high school, uh, I think the PBS pro, uh, public broadcasting station where I lived was showing airing his conversations with Bill Moyers on um, right. the power of myth, I think. And, right. and, and I was at that age, very, very much just captivated by this idea of these, these archetypical universal th structures in, in, in human beings found cross-culturally all, all over the place. Um, and that, that motivated me to go into get into anthropology. Um, mm -hmm. So this was the early nineties and I was studying cultural anthropology. And I, this, is, this speaks to a little bit what you mentioned there about kind of some criticisms of Campbell, I think um, in that nothing in, in my training or my education was, was, was actually spoken about Campbell, but in the nineties, it was the heyday or the beginning of the heyday of kind of postmodern thought at the university level, particularly in the field of anthropology. And so this, the idea that there would be rugged cross-cultural universal 
experiences or universal um, archetypes really started to get become under threat through kind of the postmodern lens that, that that no there are no universals they're just culturally constructed things and um that, that all truths are relative and you can't say one any anyone is more more true than another except for that truth of course <laughs> yeah so 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 you know in i guess where i'm going with this is that i was very interested in in, in what was what what was uh universal in the human experience um, but I, I was frustrated in my my training in anthropology, and and ultimately I I abandoned that, and and that's what set me on my my own yogic vision, my own yogic uh, search. I wanted to I wanted to go east. I wanted to find these things for myself um, directly. But in re in studying some of the old myths, whether it was Greek, Indian, uh, uh, Middle Eastern, wherever I in, in studying the primary sources, mm-hmm. I found the to be incredibly opaque. There was nothing self-evident about what these stories were trying to say about the human condition. And, and that's a, this is now a, a plug for your book. So anyone listening, if you've been struggling with myths, um, your book, I think is a excellent primer. It's just an, it's, it's really an outstanding primer in the sense that the stories are, are told in very, I think you you added a bit of Bernie vernacularism, didn't you? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I apologize for that front. I put him in my own words. <laughs> a purist would say that's not what the myth says. But... Yeah, no, no, but it, it it makes for a better read for sure, yeah. uh, at least to a, to a modern ear. And and then there's commentary that you give and and, and context that you give around them. And um, and that's what I was kind of getting at when I said about how you you put these myths in dialogue with each other a bit. And I, I just think. If anyone's interested and struggled with this material in the past, this this is a what you've provided is a really good resource for for entering into. And then, of course, you can follow up and dive deeper into the primary sources from there. Um, but in the to set up what you were just brought up around the four functions of myth, um, when I listened to this, this there's only two of the lectures that I I remember him speaking about this that I listened to, um, Campbell. I got the impression that he was saying all myth possesses these four functions and the, and the four functions are cosmological sociological function in the talk. I heard he said pedagogical, and I think in your book, you refer to it as a psychological function. And then there's a mystical function. Um, and then I, and, and, and so I want to talk about what those are and have you sort of help it, help us all understand what, what, what he means by those functions. But there was a there was a statement he said that really caught my ear, where he said, "If if a myth doesn't have the mystical function, if you have cosmology, sociological function, psychological psychological function, you just have those three, you don't have a myth. All you have is ideology." <laughs> he said, "It's the mystical function that that makes it that, that sort of breathes this the, the mythic element into the other three, um, and." But then I get, you know, in reading your book, I got the sense, and I, I know I haven't read Campbell the way you have, but I got the sense that you felt that he, a myth didn't need to possess all four of those functions simultaneously. Myths could be rooted in, in one or two of those functions and not possess maybe some of the other functions. And so, yeah, how do, I think how, it's a lot, it's a lot to ask one story to cover all four of those functions. Some do it. Some of the longer myths that you might find in the Puranas in India or the Iliad, the Odyssey—that's that's a huge thing. But it's actually made up of a whole bunch of other myths. And Campbell also just 
differentiates myth from fairy tale and myth from literature. Um, the mythos, he liked to quote uh, uh, Freud, a myth is a public dream and dreams are private myths. So a myth is something that moves the society. It's, it's something that's shared by all of society. So it's, it's from the dream world. It's from that psychic landscape that's beneath conscious awareness that's projected out onto the world. And if that dream that you have is shared by everybody else, then it's a myth. And if it's not shared by anybody else and it's only yours, then it's a dream. So it comes from the same sources. But I think it's a bit much to ask that all myths fulfill all four of those functions. Mm-hmm. Certainly the more grandiose or more broad myths can do that. And also when you read Campbell, it's, you can get uh, recordings from his lectures that go back to 1961 up to the 70s. And the mythos thing that you're talking about is a series of lectures that he gave. Like He, he was a teacher at Sir Lawrence College for decades mm-hmm. teaching this stuff. Uh, so there's lots of stuff available to him. And a lot of his talks have later been published as books posthumously. But you'll find his thinking from the 1960s is different than his thinking in the 70s. And uh, the power myth came out in the mid-80s. Unfortunately, he passed just a few weeks before it was aired. Mm-hmm. So he never, he never became aware of the, the huge impact he'd have on modern life through that that series of six interviews with Bill Moyer. Yeah. And then, and then I, uh, I don't know if it was that series or the book, I think it was the book, the hero with a thousand faces that inspired George Lucas to, yes. to, to, to shape the story of star Wars. So if people are familiar with star Wars, they, they then are indirectly familiar with Campbell's work because that is writ large in the, in the, in the whole saga of star Wars. Yeah, well, that book came out in the fifties. So that was his first famous uh, writings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, with these four functions, uh, why don't we go through them individually sure. first, give, give, give people a sense of them and then, and then, and then we can open up into how the, there may be a, a, a paucity of these functional roles in our contemporary s- situation. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of cosmo, cosmo, co- the cosmological function, um, what does that, what does that speak to for you? Well, the cosmological function is how, how we got here. Um, Every society has its stories, its origin stories of how we came to be. And in the early days, it was based on the proto-science of the day. Um, At the time of the dawn of agriculture, well, even prior to then, people looked around and they lived off their neighbors, animals, four-footed neighbors. Some were very dangerous. Some were were threatening to eat us, and some we were eating. So throughout the whole hunter-gatherer herding uh, time of human evolution, those were our neighbors, and our mythology was related to those. But then when the dawn of agriculture, it became very important to keep time, to know when to sow, when to reap. So the best way to keep time was to look up. In the sky, the sun keeps time every day. The moon keeps time every month. The word month comes from month. And then we noticed there are greater cycles, the yearly cycles, and the eight-year cycles of Venus, and the 12-year cycles of Jupiter. And so people started to observe the skies and realize with this technology, we could figure out when to plant, when to sow, when to reap, um, when would the floods come, when would the Nile flood come, when uh, Sirius rose just before the sun, and that was a sign of spring. 
and that was the time we know that the floods were coming and then we could sow after the floods because fertile soil would be there. So the, the, the story has changed. The stories are no longer about our four-footed neighbors. Their stories are about what's happening up there. That's the cosmological function to tell us how it all began. And some of the earliest stories you find in the Bible and in all the three um, mythologies that sprung from it, whether it's Christianity, Islam, or Judaism, there's three-layer cake. There's the water above, the water below, and the earth in between. Now, this was based on kind of a proto-science observation of the day. 4,000 years later, we've got a, a better science. And so our mythology today kind of has outdated the early mythology, but that's the cosmological function. That's to explain how we got here. Where did the first humans come from? Where did the universe come from? So in, in some ways, you if I replay back what I just heard from you, it, it, you'd say would you, you'd say that the, the cosmo cosmological function is in some sense descriptive of where we are, where we came from. And, and right. but I also heard in the way you were talking about it, a, a, a functional role from that description. Like the description was, had value in terms of how it allowed a, a person or a society, a group or civilization to function within the, the order of the world that they find, that they, that they encountered. Yeah. One of the ways of saying it that Campbell used is a myth puts you in accord with, so a cosmological function puts you in accord with the universe that you find yourself born into. Mm -hmm. A sociological function puts you in accord with the society that you're born into. The psychological function puts you in accord with the arc of aging, the fact that we were born and we die old. And then the mystical function, that's actually the first, the most prime function in mythology. But I, I leave it to the end because the other three build up towards it even though it is most. And the mystical function puts you in accord with the mystery that's life itself. So there is a functional aspect to all these myths. It gives you a way to function within the world that you're, you're there. So these are all etological, which means they all explain why something is the way it is. Right. And, you know, I feel like I had, once I get out of college, I... I, I I had kind of a, a attack into a kind of scientism where I, I I really felt like modern science was the the be end end all of describing the world and anything prior to discoveries in say the 1950s was just <laughs> kind of like dark age knowledge um, and and so these these myths just you know in that when I was in that phase just didn't seem to have they just seem like old, outdated, fuzzy stories that that were that were from our early prehistoric record, and and just didn't really didn't speak to me directly at all. Um, but I think it's. I would say I'm hesitant to say this person's name because he's such a controversial firebrand. But I listened to several of uh, Jordan Peterson's lectures on the Bible. I haven't, I haven't, I'm not a Jordan Peterson head. I don't subscribe to everything he says or anything, but in listening to the Bible talks that he gave, he's also very influenced by Carl Jung. And he was, he was describing these stories as, as you said, sort of um, emerging out of 
the dreamlike state of of early existence, where uh, we're, we're sort of working out our sense of our place in the world and extracting knowledge. And that knowledge gets embedded and instantiated in a story about the way things are. I think sort of one of the ways he was, I think he was trying to speak to it. Um, and, and that gave me like kind of a, a, a historic leap of cognitive empathy, trying to imagine myself back in a, say a, pre-technological society mm-hmm. and and just jump to, to teleporting myself into that space like suddenly i could i could imagine how these stories were not just just so stories but they were really you know guidelines and 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 instructions for how to be how to live how to survive and how to how to how to flourish in a way yeah, especially as they start to apply to the sociological function. But Campbell will often describe the power of the myth in being not read literally. Example he used is, suppose you you got a, uh, a headline in the Washington Post newspaper, and it says, Virgin gives birth to the Son of God, dateline Bethlehem, year zero. If you just saw that as a dry headline, as a fact, it would have a certain impact. But it would be pretty small. It'd be kind of a shrug. Well, so what? You know, something happened to some woman way over there thousands of years ago. Oh, that, hang, on, hang on, hang on. That headline came out today. You're saying this is the, this is the scenario you're trying to paint? Because if, if, if that was on the front page of the New York Times, you think people would? I wouldn't just shrug. I'm like, what the hell happened to the editorial board of the New York Times? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe when Campbell using this analogy in the '60s, it wasn't quite the same press sensitivity. But in any case, if you, if you read that headline as fact, then you can get into the whole historical thing, did it happen, did it not happen. But if you read it as metaphor, as you, you're Mary, you gave birth to God, whether your Joss is a male or a female, doesn't matter. There is God within you. And without anybody else's help, you brought forth God. That's the virgin birth. You by yourself, without any help, brought forth the God, the God that was within you. If you read this as a metaphor, then the myth has a completely different meaning. But if you take it as a fact, if you think of the whole Bible as a series of facts, then you only have to find one fact that's not true and your whole edifice crumbles like a house of cards. There's a funny anecdote he related of uh, being on a radio show, an interview. And this interviewer, it was a half hour show, he was adamant that myths were lies. And he started this interview by saying that to Campbell. Joseph Campbell, professor, thanks for coming. Let's start with a myth is a lie. And Campbell said, no, a myth isn't a lie. A myth is a metaphor. And so they went on like this for almost the whole show until Campbell finally realized this host didn't understand what a metaphor was. So he said, look, a a myth is a metaphor. Give me a metaphor. Now the host was on the spot and he said, no, you tell me what a metaphor is. Campbell said, look, I've been teaching school for 40 years. I'm asking the questions now. You tell me what's a metaphor. So now the host was on the spot and he said, a metaphor is when you say Johnny runs like a deer. And Campbell said, that's a simile. That's not a metaphor. The metaphor is Johnny is a deer. And the host said, that's a lie. And the show expired at that moment. (laughs) So if you take these myths as fact, then you're missing the importance of the myth. Mm -hmm. The myth is a metaphor. Or as one child once said, a myth is a story that's not true on the outside, but it's true on the inside. 
So the real question with all these myths is, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you that Mary gave birth to the Son of God or that Adam and Eve were the first parents? Forget the historicity of it. What does it mean to you? Yeah, and then that's where I think to find the meaning, I would say this is where we need a translator such as yourself to come in and unpack the meaning to make it relevant to, say, a modern person. Um, We see this all the time, Josh. When you look at people who love the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali, (laughs) what he wrote 1,500 years ago and what we interpret it to be now is very, very different. Now, I remember a great teacher that I love, uh, Stephen Batchelor, mm-hmm. who writes a lot about the Buddha. He said, it's hard for us to look back and realize the Buddha didn't know what was coming next. And we look back and we think, he must have known what would happen after he died and how Ananda would have lost the Sangha to Mahashkyapya Keshapaya. I can never pronounce his last name. Right. The guy who held up the flower and how it became an ism and a society. The Buddha knew nothing about that. But when we look back in history, we tend to telescope all the hundreds and thousands of years as if Patanjali knew what was happening. And we layer on to Patanjali all this stuff, like uh, the Adi Shankara's commentary well, 500 years after he started to make Patanjali into a non-dualist. Right. The scholars tell us Patanjali was dualist. And so people keep adding stuff. And the myth is what it is in your time to your mind. You can't separate the um, the Oresteia from Freud and the fact that you you've got this urge to to have sex with your mother, all these things that's now part of the, the myth of Orestes. You mean Oedipus? the original myth? Sorry, Oedipus, the Oedipus complex. So that wasn't there originally, but Freud added it, and now it's part of the myth today. So myths are evolving, They're right? Changing. Right. No, I I think I. I think I even wrote to you about a little bit about that. I was thinking about that particular myth two years ago. Um, I don't need to get into it, but I, I, I reread the myth. I hadn't read it since college. And I, you know, I remember the, the Freudian interpretation about wanting to have sex with your mother and wanting to kill your father and, and those kind right. of salient takeaways from it. Um, and I, I remember thinking, I don't think Freud got this myth at all. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is this is a myth about not understanding what you're born into, yes. you know, and not, not understanding the, the the conditions of your of your existence and and acting in, in ways that you intend to, but then you know, causing causing harm in ways that you you're trying to avoid it's, and, and the consequences of that in a way. Um, but before we digress on, on that too much, the um, let me come back to the functions here. So we a, a cosmological function puts the individual and the group in context with the world at large um, and gives right. a sense explains of how, 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 we got how. and so what is a sociological function? A sociological function puts you into accord with the society that you're born into. You did not choose your parents. You did not choose your society, but there you are, you're in this group and societies in the old days, they lived on a knife edge. They could very easily disappear. They could be taken over by some conquering empire. They could die of famine. Uh, there's lots of things that could happen to society. So societies had their rules. And you were born into the society. You had to follow those rules. So this, and these rules of society, and most of the myths, were created by the same person or deity or personality that created the cosmos. So we find a linkage 
between the same God that created the universe, whether it was seven days or the cycles of Vishnu uh, dreaming the universe, it was all different cosmological myths. That same personality created the rules of society. And Campbell would explain that today that we don't have that. We, we're in a secular society. God did not create traffic laws. If you run a red light, you don't become afraid that God Almighty is going to send a lightning bolt and smote you, smite you. <laughs> but you're looking around for a traffic cop in case he gives you a ticket. So in the secular world of today, we, we don't really appreciate these connections of the, the social power of myth and the cosmological power. But they are linked together by this. Mm -hmm. The institutes of Vishnu, the laws of Manu, they were rules to govern the actions of society. And they were given by the same guy who created the universe, Vishnu. And the same in the Old Testament. There's God, the creator, and there's all his rules that he's given to us. Well, these rules govern our role in society. And, and those myths speak directly to the members of members within a particular society. And 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 I got the sense, if I'm not mistaken, that the, soci the sociological function also speaks to how a society relates to out outcasts or, or non non uh, sorry what's what the word I'm looking for other societies like societies beyond the us and others the us and other right so um, because I think that both the cosmic like maybe I'll, I'm going to plant the seed now and and you, let you think let this question work in the back of your mind as we go through these other functions and some other examples um, because I, one thing I'm, I'd be curious if you if you were given uh, the opportunity to to write a contemporary myth that would that would include both a modernized cosmological element and a modernized sociological element, like what would those be and what and when we think about the sociological piece um again the, the myths of, of of yesterday seem to be speaking primarily to members within a society and how the society itself organizes organizes itself and and defends itself against other tribes, other societies. Um, but we're, at least my read of things, we're moving more and more towards a global society. Um, what my friend Bob Wright calls a non-zero mm -hmm. situation. And um, and in a in a in a sense, my feeling is we need to update our collective human myth that 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 speaks to a, a sociological role of all people functioning well better together as opposed to the kind of fractured polarization that we're seeing now so you don't have to answer that quite yet but i want to yes. <laughs> hold, hold that. that kind of presages the end of my book where we talk about the expanding of boundaries and the need for modern myths new myths to replace the ones that don't work anymore because if you're expecting people to buy into the three-layer cake model of the universe well the hubble space telescope blown that apart Right. Heaven is not up there. We've been there. Hell is not down there. We've been there too. So we need more more up to dateness. We need our poets and our scientists to help us write the new myths. But maybe we can leave that towards the end when we covered more of the breadth of the the topic. Yeah, sure. So so we have cosmology, sociological function, and then and you use the word psychological. So I assume that. Yes. I, mean, I mean, I again, I haven't read Campbell to the degree that you have, but I assume that that is. Did he use that term too? And yes, he just, yeah, he, he was, was his terms. Yeah. So, so he was 
in the, in the bit that I, I, I caught him on when he used pedagogical, I, I think he, would he see them as somewhat synonymous? Well, no, I'm not really sure why he used that term because they're all pedagogical to some degree. I mean, pedagogical mm-hmm. just means a teaching device and the, the social myths are certainly teaching devices as well. I think he meant pedagogical for the individual. So it, it, when I was reading your sections on, on, on how like the psychological function really helps, helps an individual navigate the inevitable changes and right. stages of life. Um, that I think that's what he was getting at. It's like, how do we come to terms with, with our human condition? Yeah. And the, the psychological function, again, puts you in accord with the fact that we go through the arc of aging. Man, as Campbell often points out, is born about 12 years too soon. We're not mature when we're born. Like a baby giraffe can get up and walk within hours. A baby human takes you know, 18 months before it's walking. So we start life as completely dependent. And we eventually go through childhood where we start to acquire some of the basic uh, things that we're going to need to function in the society. We acquire language, we acquire some skills. And then we enter this stage of adulthood. Now we can become responsible and we can beget the next generation. And then we keep maturing and we go through the grandfather, grandmother stage. And eventually we fade out through the gray door at the end of life. And in each stage, there are stories or myths to help us with to put ourselves into accord with each of those stages of life. In, in India, they're called the ashramas, the four stages of life. Modern psychologists like Eckerson, I'm sorry, Erickson, they would say there's six, some people say eight stages of life. In the West, we add stages like teenagehood. <laughs> we mm-hmm. have this strange creature called the teenager, which is very different than an adult, uh, a young kid or an early adult. But whatever it is, whatever your mythology is, they help you adapt to these various stages and the passages from the stages. Like to become an adult, you have to go through some rite of passage. For women, Mother Nature tells you when a woman has her first period, menarche, she's now a woman. But men don't have that. Boys don't have that. At what point does a boy become a man? Since nature doesn't tell you that, society has to tell you that. And all societies had their rites of passage for boys. Some in the more primal societies were very uh, shocking. Campbell liked to tell stories of the Aboriginal rites, where the young boys would be when they start to get an age where they're too much for the mothers to take care of, the men will swoop down, capture the boys. The women are always screaming and everything, but it's all planned out. And then they're taken away into the desert and they're hiding behind some bushes and they're told not to look. And they'll hear these weird songs and screams and dances going on. And if one boy should look, he'll be taken away, killed and eaten, which Campbell said was a great way to cure juvenile delinquency. And then if they behaved themselves, they were taken out, they were scarified, they were circumcised. And the man who did the circumcision, when the boy goes back to the tribe, that man's daughter becomes that boy's uh, wife. That's a rite of passage. You know, you know you're we right. have things like first communion, we have bar mitzvahs. We still have some rite of passage. Maybe it's getting your driver's license. But there's something that society says, now you're a man. Now you're a woman. You're old enough to vote. You're old enough to take your role in society. Right. And, and as you're going through that, one of the thoughts, like questions I had was, what do you see is where, where is a contemporary, like our contemporary uh, approach or, or frame around the stages of life? Where is that 
functioning well and where is it uh, deficient, not really functioning very well? Because, you know, I think I think we do pretty okay in, in a certain sense mm-hmm. of getting people sort of to adulthood, but from at the level of, of a, a, a functioning adult, someone who's able to hold down a job and earn and consume and procreate and, and, and all those things. Uh, I feel like the, the contemporary story of, 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 of the arc of life kind of essentially just denies, denies aging, aging, denies death and, mm-hmm. and, and just puts people in, you know, there's obviously a kind of a capitalist read on it, but just puts people into good consumers, you know, like, consume and, and then leave what you can accumulate to, to the next person uh, to, after you. Um, but it doesn't, it, it, there isn't, there's a, it, as you were going through the stages of, of, of life in, in, in ancient Indian society, I was reminded of how much richer some of those earlier arcs of life are in, in terms of what they hold as potentials of a human within a human life. So, for example, like within the the four stages of life in, in the Indian model, there's the the child the child phase of learning and, and being apprenticed. Yep, you can you can chime with the Sanskrit. I'm a little rusty yeah. on those. <laughs> and then there's the householder phase. Krihasta. Yeah. And you have work and raise a family and all that. And then there's at a certain point around fifty, I think there's the the the, the, the going to the forest phase. Right. The renunciate. Yeah, the, the renunciation of all of the, the conventional life that you've developed. Well, that's and, when you go to the forest and become a yogi. Right. And that, right. And that, 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 um, I, I remember that in, in Vedic religion, that the development of that around uh, kind of as a response mm-hmm. to the, the, the control of, of the priestly Brahmin caste um, mediating everyone's relationship to the, to the, to the gods and uh, and the, there were these forest dwellers who kind of resisted that 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 power dynamic and, and wanted to know for themselves directly what the what the nature of truth was. Um, but anyway, so so the, but there's that phase, and that's a very interesting. The fact that a society had that, and it, and it seems to be completely absent from Western the Western world that I'm familiar with. Um, it is, but there's also the return, the last stage, sannyasa, right. where now the yogi becomes the guru for the next generation. So the guru would teach the children, and the cycle would repeat. Although this is a an ideal in India, and I didn't know one person who did go to the forest. I was in my high-tech days. I was in a high-tech space industry, and I was selling to the Indian government. And I had a company representing me there. And the owner of the company, Surash Nabir, one day I went there and he was gone. And the company was now run by his two daughters. And I said, mm-hmm. where's Suresh? Oh, he's gone to the woods. What do you mean? I, I had no idea of any of this. This is before I got into yoga. Oh, he's wearing a white, uh, white smock now and he's in the forest. Uh, we won't see him again. And years later, I understood that this was fulfilling that third stage of life. But very few people do that. It's an idealized thing because if everyone in society did that, there would be no society left. So it's an idealized form, but it's not expected that you'll actually do that. Right. No, I, I appreciate that. No, you wrote, you wrote about that clearly in your book too. Um, it does get me thinking though about, uh, you know, I know in, in Thailand, there's kind of a, a coming of age ceremony for 
people to to ordain i think it's primarily usually for men but boys ordain for a period of time even if just for a day yes. they ordain as a monk just for a day or a week or something and it, there's there's something about it's like a, it's an initiation of sorts to maybe nod to or touch into a, a dimension of wisdom um and and prepare one to to be to bring back bring that back into the next phase of their life um and i it, it seems like i don't know i have no idea if there's any historical connection or resonance between this forest uh this, the forest movement in india and and this kind of uh the modern version of what we do in the west of a go on retreat for a week and yeah. you know, and, and be in the, like at the forest refuge in, in massachusetts or at some other nice retreat center uh cont- practicing contemplative practices um but yeah it, it, i guess that the, the question i was hovering around is is are there elements again maybe you can say this towards the end but i'm just wondering what what is what do you might see missing in our contemporary story of of the human arc of human life well, that, i think there is a big gap at the end of life i mean we've we've extended the time of childhood it used to be thought that in the ashrama the indian version you're a child for 15 years and at 15 you're now an adult and you're ready to take over the job of your your father who by then would be about 30 or so and that frees him up to go to the forest and now you rule and you rule the family until it's time for you to go to the forest well childhood in in the west now we've extended some people don't graduate school until they're 30 now you go to 12 years of school and then you go through another four or five years of university and then you go to your postdoc another five or six years of study there and then finally 30 years old now you're ready to be an adult so we've extended that whole thing and we live longer um, but it's towards the end of life where the old mess don't serve us anymore and Campbell said that every society had its departure mythologies, some story to help get people through the gray door. And he used the analogy of a time when P.T. Barnum and Bailey, their circuses were very much in vogue and they go around town. And most popular tent was, it wouldn't be politically correct today, but it was the tent of human oddities. You can go in there and see the bearded lady the tallest man in the world, the fattest man, the shortest woman. And people would want, not want to leave this tent. They just stayed there looking at all these various humans that were just outside the norm. And so they had to figure a way to get people out of the tent. So they came up with this idea. They created this big sign with a finger pointing saying, this way to the grand egress. And people thought, oh, what's an egress? Let's go see the egress. And so they followed this through a little maze and suddenly they're outside the tent. The whole point of that sign was just to get them outside. And Campbell thought a lot of our myths about what happens after life were just that. There were just ways to ease our passing from this world to the next. And you paint the story of the fluffy white clouds with a guy with a white beard up in the sky, and you'll go there. And so you eagerly go through the final door because you know there's, there's something good waiting for you on the other side. We don't know what's on the other side. <laughs> We've never been there. Uh, but we have our stories, our myths to ease our passage through there. Now today, in a secular world, again, we know there's no big guy up there in the white, in the white clouds. We've been up there. We've got balloons and aircrafts and rocket ships. So we know that's not where heaven is. And we dug down deep into the earth. We know that's not where hell is. So these stories don't move us anymore. We can't relate to them. 
And so we have a trouble sometimes with the end of life. And so no wonder we deny it. We just close our eyes to it. Like the monkeys with no seeing, no hearing, no, no speaking. We don't want to talk about this because we don't have a good myth to take us through that last transition. Yeah. Um, as you're speaking there, it, I, I think I mentioned this over email. Um, I've been working my way through a, a recent book by a kind of a, I think a independent scholar named Brian Murarescu called the immortality key. I don't know if you caught, caught wind of this book. He, he's looking at, well, let me see if I can get it right here. He's looking at the, the role that a, a they believe now to be a psychedelic wine played in the, in the mysteries of Eleusis in ancient Greek culture. And, and the similarities between that and the Soma sacrifice of Vedic culture and, and how they both are sort of downstream developments of a proto Indo-European culture that was able to ferment initially beer and, and the beer got cross-contaminated with ergot and was had a psychedelic effect mm. too. And that, that there was something about these that, um, that gave people vision, that gave, gave people mm -hmm. real insight into, into the nature of things. And regarding with what you just said, uh, the Greeks felt that going through this initiation of, of the rite of Eleusius or the cult of Eleusius conferred the initiate transcendence of death that, that there was a way that if you died while alive you wouldn't die when you died mm -hmm. and and that people came out of that experience without fear of death and and i haven't really seen it in the book how they tie it together yet but the implication is the greeks felt and like all the great great greek writers that we all know about went through this initiation but they the certain of them felt that if this initiation were to, to, to cease, that society itself would crumble. Mm. The, like the Greek civilization would fall apart. And, and, and it, it begs this question. It's sort of like the, I think there's a yoga question, like this, the fear of death and what the, what is the fear of death or the inability to process death or to face death? What is, what is that fear do in the psyche, in the psyche of the individual? And then how does that shape and re refract itself through like a fear of death. How does that refract through a whole, whole society and, and, and shape the, the sort of the ambitions and the, and the goals and the, and the and sensibilities of that society. Um, and, you know, the author of this book is, is hopeful that with the, with the, all the, the Renaissance of studies around the, the medicinal and medical benefits of psychedelics, that one of the things they're finding is people who are facing the end of their life with terminal cancer, yes. Their, their anxiety, their depression, their sense of gratitude for life, it just changes dramatically. They're much more gratitude, much less anxiety, um, commensurate with the, the, the depth of the mystical experience they have on their psychedelic journey in a way. And um, it just, you know, that just started popping up in my head when you're, when you're speaking about this, mm -hmm. that we don't, we don't have this, a, a good container, a story to contain the meaning of life when we face the end. Oh, well, meaning gets you right into the fourth function of mythology, and that is mystical. The whole, why, what's it all about, Elfie? Why are we here? How we got here, that's cosmological. 
What do we do once we're here? That's a sociological. How do I transition through my life? That's a psychological. Mm -hmm. But why is it all here? That's the mystical. To give a reason for my being. But just before we leave the psychological, I agree with what you say. It is a question that we don't have a good answer to yet today, although we are starting to see more movement in the hospice uh, counseling and the, the psychedelic research that you're talking about that help people realize that they aren't bounded by the ego when you take these psychedelics for some people, not all, but they, they feel this disillusion of the self and they're not afraid of it. And so they can look at death as just another dissolution. I've already been through that. It's not that bad. So now well, we're getting a different story that may help us transition to that final stage. I would just comment there. The, my sense is that the, the, with the dissolution of the self, there, there, there's no fear of that because it's the self itself that possesses the fear. Right. Right. So when that dissolves, it's, it's what remains, it's, but there's no fear in that. And the same thing happens to people who have had a good near-death experience. Mm-hmm. They've already died once and they realize it wasn't so horrifying that they're not afraid of death a second time. There were some people with near-death experiences that were horrific. And there's some people with psychedelic uh, experiences that were horrific as well. So it's a little bit of a, a roll of the dice as to which way it's going to come down on. But definitely for those who had the good experience, the fear of death is gone. And their passage has been definitely eased. So the, we'll say a little bit more about the mythical, uh, the mystical mm-hmm. function. Because um, the way you described it was a little bit different from the way I might have voiced it if I was just called on the street to say, what's the mystical function of the myth? You said it gives us the individual sense of why they're here, like what what the meaning of their life is. Yeah, it's what's what's it all about? What's the purpose? So this Campbell, if I can kind of speak in his voice a bit, although I won't quote him exactly. Life existed for hundreds of millions of years before the eye opened, before consciousness Self-consciousness awoke. We now think the earliest bacteria, earliest life form might have been 3.2 billion years ago. So life existed for a long time. And one day, the self awoke and looked around and said, what's it all about? It wanted a reason. So the mystical function is to give you a reason for all this. Now, as I mentioned, in the earlier primal communities, we were eating our neighbors. And we had to have some sort of permission to do that because the realization that all life feeds on life, that symbolizes in the Greek snake, the Ouroboros, that feeds on itself. Or there's a story in Indian mythology of, of Kirti Mukha, the shining face. This is similar to the Ouroboros. It's a creature created by Shiva to deal with a, a, a demon that was getting too full of himself. So he created this this stronger creature called greed. And in front of this creature, the demon had to submit to Shiva's mercy. And now greed was saying, okay, but you you don't let me eat the demon, but who shall I eat? You know, you you created me to create. And of course, greed's appetite is insatiable. So Shiva got the great idea, well, eat yourself. And so this is what greed did. It started with its feet and it ate through its, its waist, its chest, its arms, even ate its lower jaw. So all that was left was this shining skull. And Shiva was so pleased with this. Uh, I'll call you Kirti Mukha, shining face. And you see in the, the temples to Shiva, there is a, a sculpture of Kirti Mukha. 
And Shiva said, anyone who wants to know me has to go through you first. <clears throat> so all life feeds on life. That's, that's the horror. That's the awe of realization of life. I mean, even if you're a vegetarian, you still eat carrots. You're still taking a life in order to keep your life. But we need a reason to, to assuage our consciousness of this. So our myths give us permission. <clears throat> in the primal communities, the hunting communities, we had an accord with the animals. We had um, a buffalo dance or some sort of ceremony where we would ritually slay the animals and return the blood to the soil so that next season the animal would come back. And so our accord with the animal was, <clears throat> dear animal, if you give me your body to consume, I will give you the blessing of a departure ceremony so that you can come back again next season. So the mystical function is to put us in accord with this, this horror of existence that all life feeds on life. You fast forward a few millennia and you'll see in the Old Testament, <clears throat> God will give you cities that you did not build, will give you vineyards that you did not uh, uh, sow, will give you cattle that you did not raise. God gave permission to the Hebrew, to his chosen people, to go into Canaan and kill all the people there. Today, we call that genocide. <clears throat> Murder was only a crime if it was done against your own tribe. Murder was never a crime if you did it against somebody else. So it's God's permission through these stories that allowed them to go in and basically commit genocide to the, the Canaanites. So in all of those examples, whether it's sort of the... The relationship of the tribe to the animals that they're eating, hunting, um, or the sort of the the moral code around killing, whether it's murder or warfare, maybe. Um, to me, those 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 dimensions of the myth don't sound so mystical to me. They sound more sociological, cosmological, um, and I, and that's why I was I was sort of struck by how you described the mystical side of it. Because my sense is that, and I, and I could be wrong here, but the, the mystical is 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 also about realizing a, maybe a different dimension of who you are, or coming to a whole new understanding of what the role of your individual in the context of the world is. Um, you know, and so I'm thinking that maybe I have I have a bit of a kind of an Indian Buddhist bias here around mm -hmm. myst mystical realization but you know one way of describing it is the sense of separation falls away and you are like the, the nisargatana maharaj book title i am that like that the, there's a union of non-separation with all of things and and from that 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 leads to a very different engagement with with the world so long as that 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 um that i that identity you could say is established um, but it, 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 the mystical, and I haven't heard you say it this way, and I'm wondering if I got it wrong, but the mystical seems like it's a, it's a, it's a radical transformation of the, the consciousness of the individual in a way. It can be, depending on the other myths that you're following. Mm -hmm. Your cosmological myth is going to set up what your mystical myth is going to look like. So the people who follow the Old Testament, their mystical myth is to... Uh, maybe I need to back up a bit. But before I get there, yes, you're right from a Buddhist point of view. The Buddhist mystical myth is anatta, no self. 
There is no self. That is very unique teachings, but that follows a very different Buddhist sociological and psychological mythology and even a different cosmological mythology. The idea, though, that you still need some sort of reason, some sort of what's it all about, that can be explained in a lot of different ways. They're all just games that you can choose to play. You can choose to play tennis. You can choose to play pickleball or basketball. These games are all wonderful games, but they're just games. If you take them as reality or something, this is very important, you're going to miss the enjoyment of playing the game. But you can't tell me that tennis is the only game that matters. It's just a game we get to play. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut, I'm sure you've heard of him, a wonderful writer. He once wrote a book where God made man as mud. Mud woke up, looked around and said, wow, you did a good job here, God. What I couldn't have done this. This is amazing. Why'd you do it? And God said to Mud as man, do I need a reason? And Mud said, well, yeah, I mean, you did all this work. There must have been a reason. So God said, okay, well, I'll leave it to you to think of one and walked away. But we, we, we're the ones that have to put a reason on all this. But in the true heart of the Buddhist teachings, I like to call it the center of a bowl. I mean, we are all literalists. We're all conceptualists. Joseph Campbell explains the Garden of Eden mythology as, uh, you know, know, the typical story. There was two trees in the garden, the tree of immortal life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, and you can eat of anything you want, but don't eat of the fruit of God, of good and evil. But of course, him and Eve and the serpent get together and they eat. And now they know the difference between good and evil. They notice that they're naked. So they clothe themselves. And God comes walking in the cool of the evening looking for Adam. Where are you? He was hiding because he's embarrassed. So he got kicked out of the garden. Well, Joseph reads this myth as God didn't kick us out of the garden. We kicked ourselves out because we are conceptual animals. Uh, My children, when they were first learning to talk, one of the first questions was, what's that? What's that? What's that? That's a dog. That's a cat. That's your Aunt Linda. We like to conceptualize things because once we can put a name onto something, we think we understand it. My daughter saw a cow and said, that's a cat. I said, no, no, that's a cow, but it's got four legs. Yes, but big creatures with four legs are cows, small creatures with four legs are cat. So we refine our stuff. We conceptualize. And then we start to think that's it. That's reality. So today we would look at a stop sign and we'll think that says stop sign. But if you bring someone from the Kalahari who's never seen a car before or a road and you ask them what that is, they'll give you a much more accurate description. Well, it's sticking the ground. <clears throat> it's got a piece of metal. It's got eight edges, it's black, I'm sorry, it's red, and it's got some white printing. They'll see what it is. But we, because we've conceptualized the world, we see it as a stop sign. Yeah, no, we cannot, I, we cannot not see it as a stop sign. I had a the uh, Buddha comes by and says there is no stop sign. <clears throat> right. I had a I had a Canadian monk uh use that very analogy or that story of the stop sign and said, like, how long is it before you you see the, the word stop when you look at a stop sign? Like you, you can't, in other words, you can't look at that without seeing the concept of, of the sign itself. Once you, once you're cultured to it, which is, I think what you're saying. And so it's, you, yeah, you, we're conceptualizing creatures. So we got that concept in our head. We can't get rid of it. And the Buddha comes along and says, you have to live in a world where you're beyond those concepts. You're in the middle of the bowl. When you live on the edge of the bowl, you're a, you're a rimster. You're living in the world of con- concepts. 
But if you can let go of those concepts and be where there's nothing, now it's difficult to teach because I'm using words to explain something that words can't teach. The Kenya Upanishad says, here words do not go. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I use the word nothing, I'm back on the rim of the bowl because that's another concept. So you have to go past those concepts. So in the Buddhist teachings, the mystical is to get to the Garden of Eden, get to that point before we ate the apple, get to the golden Buddha realm, get to whatever word you want to use is not going to describe it because you just create another concept. So right. here you get into a different mythology that is, it's wonderful. It's great to play that game. And can you live in the world where you know it's not a stop sign, but you stop anyway? Yeah, and I guess this is where I, maybe I'm where I'm running into some difficulty is um, the the cross cultural universalness or universality of mystical experience, and whether or not there's actually evidence for cross cultural mystical experience, or whether whether the mystical experience is always conditioned by the culture that it's experienced within. Um, and do you have any sense of? Yeah, I don't think you where... can get rid of that. I mean, you think of in the in the West, we we have predominantly a dualistic culture, and this comes from the Bible. It's in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So there's God, the Creator, and there's us, His creation. You are not God. You are not divine. You are divinely created, but you're not divine. Mm-hmm. And the highest blasphemy in the West is to go up to somebody and say, "I'm God." If you do that, they'll string you to a tree. Because that's blasphemy. Jesus said that, I and my father are one, and he was crucified. Eight centuries later, the Sufi saint Al-Halaj said, I and my beloved are one, and he was killed for it. But in the East, for the most part, we have a non-dualistic philosophy. In the beginning, there was the self. And one right, day, the before, self- before, before we go to the East, can I just pause you there? So, yeah. so you're saying we have a dualistic, in the West, we have a dualistic model, um, and yet some of the like jesus for example one of the most transformative figures oops one of the trans most powerful figures in the west and at least in the western mind was someone who who he was spoke yeah he was unique but 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 he but but he he did make this statement i am god Yes. Well, you see, in the West, because you are not divine, your spiritual task of tasks is to find your relationship to the divine. Mm -hmm. And if you're a Christian, you're related to God through Jesus. If you're Jewish, you're related to God through the minion. You need 10 adult males, or now it can be females too, but you need 10 adults before God will appear. If you're Islamic, you need the, the Ummah, the community. But somehow you have to find your relationship to the divine. That's your task. Dante, in his weekend, in the the Divine Comedy, Mm -hmm. he spent the whole Easter weekend just to behold the beatific vision. He wanted to see God. That's as much as you can get to. Now, in the East, that's the sixth chakra. That's the Ajna, where the lover beholds the beloved. And there's no way to go higher than that. But in the East, there's the summit, where the beloved becomes the lover, and becomes one. Because in the Eastern mythology, especially through Vedanta, where one of the earliest Upanishads, the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, has its creation myth of the self. So 
So can I go to that story? Please, yes. Okay. So this is the way Joseph kind of describes it. In the beginning, there was a self. Now, this is capital letter S self. Actually, let me just pause for one second because um, uh, so, so no one gets whiplash here. You're now <laughs> speaking about <laughs> you're speaking about uh, a, a text composed roughly uh, 900 BC, 900, yeah, 900, 500 BC, uh, known as the Upanishads, or, or a text within this the Upanishads. Is, yeah, one of the earliest Upanishads. One of the earliest Upanishads, and you, I want to give you high marks on your pronunciation of it. Can you just try, try that again? <laughs> well, if I don't think about it, I can say it. But if, now you get me to think about it. the Brihadaranyaka. Beautiful. Okay, so and th- and this is this is um, if it's 900 BC, this is definitely sort of would you say it's proto Brahmanism? I mean, this, Hinduism hasn't even emerged yet. Uh, no, the, no, this the, is in the cusp between Vedanta to sorry, Veda to Vedanta. Yeah. Okay. This is what um, the writer and ex nun. Um, I'm sorry, her name has just escaped me. <laughs> Goodness, she Where called it she? the Axial Age. This was the time when philosophy was invented. And all throughout the ancient world, it happened almost simultaneously. In Greece, right. it was the age of the philosophers. In the Middle East, it was the age of some of the, the prophets. In, in Up in China, it was Lao Tzu and Confucius, although Lao Tzu is more mystical than real. And in India, it was the age of the, the Vedanta and um, the Upanishads. And so this story, the Brihadaranyaka, is about the same time as the earliest creation myth in Genesis. In Genesis, there's two creation myths that are put side by side. There's one that's written during the Babylonian exile, and there's an earlier one, which is remnants of more of a Sumerian earlier mythology. So this one is more contemporary with the Garden of Eden mythology. Okay, so what's the story? In, what, what? Karen Armstrong, sorry, was the name of the Oh, right, right. right. Yeah. She, did she coin that term, Axial Age? Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. I love her work. She's great. Yes. So yeah, so again, the self. So the self, one day, before there was any days, had a thought. It thought, I. And as soon as it had that thought of existence, it became afraid because as soon as you have the idea that I exist, there's there's a possibility that you don't exist. And so it became afraid. But then it reasoned, I am the only thing that does exist, so what's there to be afraid of? And so it felt calmed down. But then the next emotion it felt was loneliness because it was the only thing that existed. So it decided to swell up and it became as big as two people embracing and it split into two, a male and a female self. And as soon as this original self split into two, the male self and the female self clung together in the nature of male and female. And out of that first union came all of us, came all the human race. But then the female self had a thought, well, wait a minute, she disengaged and said, He's kind of like my twin brother, and we probably shouldn't be doing this. So she ran away. And he, being a normal male self, ran after her. So she decided to hide. She turned herself into a cow. He found her, turned himself into a bull, and went into her, and that created all the cattle. So she thought, well, this didn't work. So she ran away again. This time she turned herself into a donkey. He found her, turned himself into a jackass, and we had all the donkeys. And this it, went it, on all the way it, down it, to the is end. that is that thread really in the story, or is that a Bernie vernacularism into the story? The jackass that that's yeah. Joseph. 
<laughs> okay. That's Joe's funny. <laughs> but that, but that, uh, just, I want to give the listeners a sense. That's, there's a lot of this in, the, in, in your book, like these little, <laughs> little spins on these things that make them very funny. Okay. So this continued all the way down to the ants. And then after all this, the self stopped and looked around and said, wow, all of this came from me. And I am in all of this. So here we have a creation myth that's very different from the one in the West. This is a non-dualistic creation mm -hmm. myth. You are divine. You are part of that original self. The namaste that we all do, the putting the hands together, and then we say namaste, which is kind of redundant because the namaste is the hands together, is the divine in me says hello to the divine in you. My divinity acknowledges your divinity. So if I go up to somebody in India and say, guess what? I'm God. They'll just shrug and say, so what? So am I. What's your point? Do that to somebody in the West, again, you get crucified. So we've got or, these two very different mythos. We've got the dualistic view in the West and the non-dualistic view, by and large, in the East. Although there are dualistic views in the East as well, but by and large, it's a non-dualistic view. So if that's your map, if that's what you've been brought up with, your mystical function is going to be very different too. Your task of task in the West is to come into relationship with the divine, either through Jesus, through the minion, through the Uma. In the East, your task of task is to recognize your identity as divine. You are it. Tattavam asi, says the Chandogya Upanishad. You are it. Okay, so you're saying that in the, in, the, in the West, the mythology is dualistic and therefore when we approach the mystical, we'll be having a, a dualistic relationship with the divine. And in the East, the, the, some of the mythology, most of the mythology is non-dualistic and, and the mystical path in the East will culminate in a realization of being one with the divine. Is that about right? Yeah, you are divine. You are divine. And these, these maps, they're very opposite. They're, they're binary and different, but people try to put them together. And there's very uneasy mapping of this. When people try to use some of the Eastern teachings and a Western audience, it just it's, it slips. It doesn't quite work. Because right. No, you, you're divine, but you can't say that in the West because that's blasphemy. Or, or megalomaniac, like, yeah. like psycho, psychopathology, you know, or what do yeah. you think? Um but then, okay, so the, the, I, I, this is a, a cheeky question. You can you can swat it aside. But what happens then when a Westerner dives deep in, say, something like we've done is is in in, in Eastern spirituality, like take an Eastern contemplative path, and goes deep? Does, are you? It, it, this may be too heavy of a read of what you're saying, but it, it sounds like what you might be saying is then the, the Westerner would then have a have a dualistic kind of realization. And not have a non-dual one, but it, but it, don't you think that? But the non-dual and the dualistic mystical experience, whether it's a relationship to the divine or a realization of being divine, are equally available to people of Eastern, Eastern, Western, or North or South, wherever they, they come from. It can be, but I think it helps to understand the base maps that you're looking at. If you just go into it without. Uh, changing your understanding, I think you're going to come up with some cognitive dissidence so, or some emotional dissidence mm -hmm. that it just won't make sense to you. But if you start to think of all these mythologies as simply maps, the point of a map, I use maps a lot in my teaching as an analogy, the point of a map isn't to be right. If I have a street map of Vancouver, I don't expect it to be Vancouver. 
The point of a map is to help me with something. It's to be useful. A street map will help me get from here to a yoga studio. That's a good map. A weather map is very different. But it doesn't mean the weather map is wrong and the street map is right. A weather map is not going to help me get to a yoga studio. But if I want to plan going golfing tomorrow, a weather map can help me with that. No, it's going to be miserable. So we've got different maps that have different purposes. And that's fine. But don't think that every map is right. No map is correct. No philosophy, no mythology is truth. Mm-hmm. But if the mythology is useful to you, if it helps you live your life, it helps you live within your society, then it's a good map. But if you find you're always getting lost, then maybe it's time to get a new map, a better map. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I can go on the rim, the bowl, and I can see a stop sign and stop. But I can also know that stop sign is not really a stop sign. Or I can follow a dualistic map and realize, you know, there's, there's God, the creator, and the last creation, or there's spiritual and physical, which is more the potentially thing. There's Purusha and Prakriti. That's a dualistic map. I can certainly play in that realm quite happily, but I can also go to the non-dualistic map. In Vedanta, there is no physical, mental, spiritual separation. It's all Brahman. Mm-hmm. And it's just an illusion that there's a physical world. Or you can go to the non-dualistic scientific map. There is no mental. It's all an emerging property of the physical. So we have so the last one, that last one again, the emergent what? It's, um, it's just an emergent property of the physical. There is no mind. There's only brain. What is it's that what map? What the brain does that create the mind. What, what, what did you call that map? It's still a, a non-dualistic map. All is there's one. A- I thought but there was a the qualifier. View, all is mind, and in the scientific view, all is physical. Ah, I see. Yeah, gotcha. So, is, is it physical or spiritual? There's a dualism in Patanjali. Mm-hmm. It's either one or the other, Purusha or Prakriti. In Vedanta, it's all spiritual. In most science, it's all physical. So we have non-dualism here, but two different flavors of it, and we have dualism in the middle. Choose any map. Like Campbell says, you can choose any game you want, but just don't tell everybody else that they have to play your game. Well, that sounds like it might be a good segue into our current moment. Mm. <laughs> yes. I don't know if it sounds seems like that to you. Um, and I'm not even sure how to how to begin, but maybe, and maybe I, I don't know if you've heard any of my chats with Bob Wright, but you know he. Through you, yes. Yeah, his, in, in his analysis, I think, if I if I do him justice, um, so Bob's a, a writer and uh, a public intellectual who writes about science, but also has lots to say about foreign policy. And increasingly, he's concerned about the, 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 the looming apocalyptic threats that the world faces within the next decade or so, whether it's climate change, arms races, um, uh, bioweapons, et cetera. Um, in some sense, the, the current pandemic is just a dress rehearsal for, for really gnarly things to come down the pipe. And uh, in order to address these global issues, uh, his, his view is that there needs to be some emergent form of a global form of governance to tackle them in, 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 a, in, in cooperation to be successful. And if we don't, if we, if we splinter into 
nationalistic tribes, if we splinter into ethno-nationalistic tribes, we just won't have the um, the wherewithal to, to tackle these 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 collective problems we're facing. And so, in, in smack in the middle of his of his diagnosis, he feels uh, there are these cognitive biases that have evolved in a very primitive uh, uh, time that are, are really driving us to driving us into increased polarization and tribalistic uh, conflict with each other. And, and, you know, social media is for sure a, 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 a variable that's exacerbating this polarization. Um, but in talking to him and then, you know, thinking through some of the, the thoughts, the, the statements that Campbell has made, I'm, I've been wondering what, what can a myths, maybe we can start with this, like what myths might speak to some of the things that we're seeing now? I think you use the example of, um, you know, the, the, the views around vaccination mm-hmm. as, be, as being indicative of certain kinds of mythical elements at play in our society right now. And, and, and I leave it to you to ask you to see if you could unpack that a little bit. Like what, what kind of mythic functions do you see at play right now um, in, in terms of this, this issue of polarization? Yeah. Is that too I general? Campbell, I think Campbell would have a very definite view of what's happening today in the world from through a mythological lens. When he passed in 1984, he was very optimistic about the future. He was reading reports of the astronauts going up into this space and looking down on the earth and not seeing any borders. There are no boundaries. You couldn't tell where Canada ended and the US began. There are some minor exceptions of that where forestry <laughs> rules are different on one side of the border, but he believed that boundaries were dissolving and we're becoming a bigger and bigger group. And if you look through the 80s and maybe into the 90s and you saw the world free trade and things like that, the world did seem to become more and more of a global village. And it seemed to help a lot. Now, myself, my own prior life when I was selling space technologies to China and to India, with the technologies, we had to sell access to the intellectual properties. We had to sell the software and we had to teach them how to maintain and upgrade the software. And that gave them the ability to become better and more self-sufficient. So it was a rising tide that was lifting all boats. Now, some people were worried that we're giving the Chinese and Indian too much technology, they're gonna get ahead of us. But our philosophy was, well, somebody's gonna give to them anyway, so might as well be us. And we're already a few rungs above them. If we keep developing, we'll always stay above them. So we weren't worried about lifting all the boats at the same time. But with that, there were always some people left behind. And these people suffered through globalization. And the people that were benefiting from it weren't taking care of those that were suffering from it. I think Campbell would look at this, and if we can kind of spin back to the sociological function, (coughs) excuse me, in India, the Indian society was very conservative. It's been this way for thousands of years. And it was based on three legs of a stool. There was Varna, which roughly you can say is the caste system. There's karma, which we can roughly say is reincarnation. And then there's dharma, your duty. And we don't have time to get into each one of these, but we just look at dharma. A lot of people today, I think, misread dharma, or at least they look at dharma in a more modern context. But if you look back to the original mythic understandings of dharma, 
as illustrated in the Bhagavad Gita with uh, Krishna's lessons to Arjuna. This was you know, the start of a great war. Arjuna was a warrior. He was supposed to go out and start the war, fire the first shot, and his courage failed him. And Krishna was teaching him that it's his duty as a Kshatriya to fight. And don't worry about the outcome. I've already determined the outcome. So your job is just to do. <clears throat> you are born in society to fulfill your role. That's your dharma. You have no choice. It's not like in the West. In the West yeah, how, how would you characterize the Western conception of dharma? Well, right now, people say, oh, what's my dharma? I think I'm going to go and be a yoga teacher. No, that's following your bliss. That's not following what society says you have to do. That's following what you want to do. That's a right. psychological function. That's very different. And isn't there, isn't there a line from the Gita that Krishna says something like, it's, it's better to do your own dharma poorly than to do someone else's dharma perfectly? And, right. and that, that in, in, in modern years is like, well, just, I think is what you're just saying. is like follow, not necessarily your bliss, but just follow what you want to do most. And 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 doesn't matter if, it's, if you're successful or not, it's important to be, just be you. You have to be you authentically. Well, this is why we, we have this disconnect between West and East, because we have these different maps. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wrote the book so people can understand what they mean by things like Dharma in the East versus what we mean by it. What do they mean by ego in the East versus what we mean by it? What do we mean by freedom? In the, in the West, freedom means license. I'm free to do whatever I want. It's a free world. Freedom in the East is freedom from want. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference. Yeah, Not free may- to do what you want, but free from wanting things. So East and West, we hear same words. But we have very different interpretations. Dharma in the West, in the East, you were born to do this. In the West, you're five years old at your birthday, saying, Josh, what kind of cake do you want? Do you want chocolate or vanilla? You Strawberry. Strawberry. Ice cream. And then when you grow up, do you want to marry Betty or Jocelyn? In the East, you don't have those choices. You're going to eat chocolate. You're going to marry Betty. And you haven't even met her. So all this is prescribed for you. That's dharma, and that's what kept society working. Karma meant that you'll find your rewards in the next life. There's no American dream. Not everybody can grow up to be president of the United States. Yeah. You were born to your role. That's dharma. That's society. This is John F. Kennedy at his inauguration speech. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That's society talking. Mm-hmm. Society has its rules. And people that don't follow the rules are kicked out, they're ostracized. Now in the old days, if your tribe kicked you out, that was like a death sentence. You couldn't survive without the community. So you had to obey society, to do what society said. But then we have the psychological function, which is my own thing. And in the East, basically there was the map of behaving was based on social rules. But in European theater, it was much more of individualistic. And Campbell brings us down to one being a planting culture and one being a hunting gatherer culture. In a planting community, it doesn't matter who you are. Anybody can pluck a banana. Anybody can plow a field. Individual uniqueness is irrelevant. But in the hunting community, it makes a difference whether you can slay a a mammoth or you can protect your village from the, the, the people evading from the next valley. Individual performance was valued. And then with the movement of Christians into the European theater, we had this mingling. 
And Campbell explained this with the difference of the heroes, East and West. In the West, we have the hero of Prometheus, who stood up to God. In the East, you have the heroes of Arjuna, who followed Krishna's teachings, or Job in the Old Testament, who did what God said. But in the, in the West, we have our heroes who defy society, defy the gods. But now we had the Christian ethic being brought inside, and now we've got a very confused state. Six days of the week, as Campbell would say, we're with uh, Prometheus. We're out there carving our own path. Then for an hour or two every Sunday, we're in church with Job in Arjuna. And then on Monday, we're on the psychiatrist's couch trying to figure out, I don't know what to do, because we have these overlapping myths, which have two very different you know, mythos underneath them. So we'll see this all the time. You'll see the, the individual, the rugged individualists of the West and the society's claim on that person. You have the Jack Kerouacs, the Beats in the 50s and the hippies in the 60s. All these people who are getting out of society that would rage against the machine. Uh, your, your listeners are probably way too young to remember the movie called Easy Rider. You've got a very young Jack Nicholas and uh, Peter Fonda riding motorcycles through the south of the U.S. free. And that caused a backlash. So at the end of the movie, they're shot off their motorcycles with shotguns because mm. the empire does strike back. So we always have this, this constant to and fro. Which is more important, the rights of the individual or the rights of society? And the vaccination is a perfect current example. We have society saying, get vaccinated. We have some other individuals saying, no, I don't have to. I have my own rights. So we've seen this play out time and time again. It's a very classic myth. Attention, tension between myths. Right. A classic but now tension. what's happening is Campbell was very optimistic that the boundaries between us were dissolving. It was no more us and them. We are all part of the human community whether it was you know, the, the early Hebrews taking over the land of Canaan, committing genocide because their God said to do it, that doesn't happen anymore. We're much more sensitive to those things. They are us. They're all humans. Mm -hmm. So we were expanding, 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 dissolving boundaries. We can became almost a global village. But then there always were people left behind. And then with social media, suddenly people could break off and not be alone. Whereas before, the individualist in the U.S. could go off and be a cowboy somewhere by himself or a yogi in the forest. Now all the cowboys have their, their Facebook page. And suddenly they're a community outside of the community. This may be too much of an of a oversimplification, but in the, in the, in the trajectory of, of, of dissolving boundaries that Campbell's describing, there's a development in history where People everywhere, you, wherever you are, you're 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 becoming more and more interdependent of with right. all other people on the planet, and you can say that technology was the was the main driver in that development and the, the dissolving of boundaries, and and the internet was kind of the apotheosis of that that um, that possibility of interconnection and interbeing. Um, but then there's something about the the, the social media landscape that allowed people to to balkanize to to get into their own silos to get into their own echo chambers and the the, the idea that i remember i think it was jenny odell who introduced this to me but the, she she introduced this idea of uh, context collapse where 
in the in the landscape of social media and in internet in general that we we lose context around things so that it's hard to make sense of what something means without that context if i'm saying this clearly enough um and and i think that's that's one of the things that i i feel is a, is a under threat like the under threat in a sense with in terms of what is granted the ep- ep- epistemological power like how do we know what we know and there's a the, the, the i think the social media situation has allowed people to get a little nugget of something like a little bit of a a, a scientific statement or a mm-hmm. talking talking head with someone who has some letters at the end of their name and 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 that is enough you just get one statement on something and that's enough to hang your ideological view on you don't need to put that statement in a larger context you don't need to deal with the debate about the veracity of the statement it's it's if it's if it's kind of affirming to your own confirmation of the belief that you have the bias you have your own bias is confirmed within that and there's 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 a way that you just don't have to engage with evidence or information or data that is uh, inconvenient or creating cognitive dissonance for you. So there's, I guess what I'm trying to describe is that like, I, I agree with you. I think that we were, we were on the verge of this emergence of a, like a, a, a global village of sorts. And yes, people were left behind by that. There was the, 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 the economic issues involved in that, but, but now there's a, there's a, I feel like there's a crumbling of, of the power of truth itself. And yeah, we, we've, I think your term balkanization is quite true because people can now leave society. Before, if you're ostracized, that was a death sentence. Mm-hmm. But now you don't die. There's a place you can go to. So it's not that it's necessarily the hero versus the machine anymore because there's a whole group of heroes. It's not an individual although they may wear that mantle. They may think I'm the hero, everyone else is a sheep. And so I'm, I'm leaving the sheeple behind. But that hero goes and joins the community with a thousand other people. So it's just a different flock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they're putting up their boundaries. Now these boundaries may be based on alternate truths, alternate facts, different people finding different people credible. Now, who knows why they're splitting off, but there is a splitting off going. And in my own Facebook things, I resisted the urge to unfriend people who I disagree with, people that my private thoughts, I may think that's just ludicrous. That's just, I have no idea where they're getting that from. But if I was to actually build that wall there, then there's no hope. And there are people today who are making good living of building walls. Whereas, you know, Campbell was in, living in a time when walls were dissolving, borders were dissolving. Where there was technology, he didn't have the internet back then. It was certainly international commerce and trade amongst people. <clears throat> but that's reversed. And now we're finding politicians are finding it's it's better for them to build walls and to carve off people from other people. So we're at the exactly wrong time in our society because we've got global problems that need solving. We've got climate change that needs solving. We've got a whole bunch of other problems that needs the whole world to come together. And this is exactly the wrong time to be closing ourselves off. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to figure out some other way 
of dissolving these boundaries, not reinforcing them. And I'm, I see my own friends who are making it worse by building the walls higher, by unfriending people and by ridicule. And mm -hmm. if you want to convince something, somebody of something, if you really disagree with this person, say you believe in vaccination and you got a friend or a family member who's an anti-vaxxer or just vaccine hesitant and you ridicule them, well, that's certainly not going to convince them. Nobody's ever been convinced through ridicule. Right. Or if you tell them that you're stupid or you're, you just don't know what you're talking about, that's not going to convince them. So instead, whenever we do that, if you share a posting on Facebook that is just ridiculing other people, you're building the walls higher and higher. There's no way you can bring walls down that way. Right. And then, um, as I'm sure you're aware, the, the, the revelation around the, the algorithmic design of these things is, is, is tailored such that it re rewards and reinforces the kinds of inflammatory wall building statements yeah, that become more is a wall building machine. Right. Right. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I'm with you there. And I, I think the, 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 you made me think of an article. I think I saw in the New York times where uh, there was a, there was a really nice treatment of, of saying just what you just said, you will not be able to convince someone through ridicule or through shame or through argument. And they, the, what they recommended was the, the, the path of compassion or they didn't say it like that, but they did say to come at it through compassion, just to, to seek to understand and, 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 and empathize with what the person is, is concerned about as a, as a starting point. And that's just not on, not on evidence very much these days. There's just, there's, yeah. there's very little of that. Um, and, and I think that's, that this is the concern I have is that people just, I mean, it sounds kind of a little bit Pollyannish for me to say, but it's just people literally are not able to hear each other anymore. Like there's just, there's, there's, and there's what Bob calls a, a deficit of cognitive empathy. You cannot imagine what it's like to see someone, see a situation from another person's eyes, like, or how they see how they feel about it, um, and without that, it it's so much easier to get into projecting attribution attribution error on someone like unknowing why they're doing it, and they're doing it because they're stupid, they're they're uneducated, they're yes. whatever like whatever you know ad hominem you want to hurl at them. That's the reason why they're doing it. Like all Trump voters are just idiots, or whatever you know. I know that's not true. Right. I I know that's not true. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, again, I, I try to get prescriptive in my, how I try to think about this, like what could fashion a, a path forward for this very predicament you're describing, like what kind of mythology would need to come and play. And I think, you know, if I, to use your example of like the, the astronauts from the moon, looking back at the earth, you know, I think that, that vision like a, a, that immediate perception that we're we're all on this beautiful floating orb, blue orb, and 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 blue dot. that the big blue dot, yeah, the little blue dot. That that experience uh, from the accounts I read, you know, really did get, confer a kind of mystical appreciation for yeah. for life on Earth. Um, I know, uh, you know, I was, I was watching some documentary on psychedelics, and they were going through the history of the '60s and people, you know, at, at, I think it was actually a documentary on Woodstock that I was watching and, and, and people were tripping out of their mind. And, you know, you saw a great, 
concord between people of all sorts of different races and mm-hmm. um, backgrounds. You know, they they were because they didn't see themselves as separate. There was something about the psychedelic again that allowed them to step out of themselves and see a, a, a primary unity of 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 existence and. You know, again, I'm not on the, at the Timothy Leary end of the spectrum. Like, let's put LSD in the drinking water. But what will it? What do you think could facilitate? What what kind of mythic threads? We don't have to. We don't have to give it a a, 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 a cohesive myth yet. But just mm-hmm. what kind of mythic elements, mythic threads, could nudge this the trajectory that the that the species or human species is on? away from to avert the apocalypse <laughs> right i wish i had a, a the answer i'm not sure there's one answer and i'm this is not my my field and i'm not that qualified to offer it i do know what doesn't work some of the things we already talked about you know we've all heard of the golden rule it's been shared in many different traditions but prior to that there was another version of the golden rule the standard golden rule jesus speaking on the mount i think it's in Thomas or Matthews, he's talking about it. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But hundreds of years earlier, Confucius even has a version of it, which is don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Mm-hmm. So when you think of this when you're on Facebook, don't say to somebody what you wouldn't want to have them say to you. Like, don't really kill, don't call them stupid, don't do all those things. But there is a paradigm or a mythology or a path, maybe a philosophy which we call science. Science is never truth. We can never prove anything is true in science. We can prove something is not true. It's only in the world of mathematics that you can have proofs. But in science, it's an ever-ending quest towards more and more assurity. But all it takes is one example, and the whole edifice comes down. Um, Richard Feynman, the famous American physicist last century said, I'd much rather have questions I can't answer than answers I can't question. Mm. So avoid the dogma. That's the difference between religion and science. Religion is a revealed truth. This is true because I've told you, and it's come from all these rishis of thousands of years ago. You can't question that. Science says everything is questionable. And if you just give one fact that shows this is wrong, the whole theory has to change. So if you're talking but, to somebody... Can I interject for a sec? Yeah. Because I think like, one of the things that I, I, I feel like I hear in the issues of, with science is, you know, people will cite studies and say, this is true because science says it's, it's true. But then they'll say, well, then there's this other study that showed that it's not true. So therefore, you know, basically, <laughs> like, what's science, you know, the, the, it, see, it showed it's not true. So we can just, we can dismiss it now. And, the, and there's no appreciation of the, of the subtlety of what you're describing, I think. That's why I want well, to pause it. Science, there's hard sciences and softer sciences. The hard sciences like physics, F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. That's a theory. But no matter how we try to not to prove this theory wrong, we always fail. So that's very solid science. Then you get into the biology sciences and the psychological sciences and nutrition sciences. And these, we have to deal with mass number of people. And the way we do the study is very important. Many studies are flawed for a variety of reasons. And so the scientists will argue amongst each other. So there, you're going to have to go with the consensus of the scientists. 
of the people who actually know that. You have to answer the question of who's credible. But no scientist should properly say, this is so because this has been proven. Nothing's ever proven. We have strong evidence this is happening. And this was one of the problems with climate change. Climate change scientists were speaking scientifically. There's strong evidence, 95% possibility, that the Earth's climate is changing and we're the ones causing it. Now, all the people funded by the fossil fuel industries jumped on that and said, oh, there's a 5% chance you're wrong. Well, yeah, but it's a very, very tiny percent chance and everyone believes, you know, only 1% of scientists don't believe it. The consensus is the world is changing, we're causing it. But people jump on this other one. But even that's not proven. The theory of evolution is a theory. So a lot of people say, oh, it's just a theory. Well, everything in science is a theory. That is science. Mm. Now, if you're a scientist, you have to be willing to ask yourself, okay, I've got a theory. How can I disprove it? I'm going to set up some experiments. And if the experiments go wrong, <clears throat> my theory is wrong. Einstein came up with this theory of relativity, this theory of gravity and relativity. And it predicted that on a total eclipse of the sun, the sun is so massive it can bend light. Mass can bend space-time. So if there's a star right behind the sun, we can't see it. But because it's the gravity of the sun is going to actually bend the light, we'll be able to see the star if we can somehow black out the sun. And that happens during a total eclipse. So mm -hmm. they did this experiment. They looked and they, sure enough, they found the star. If they hadn't, that would have disproved Einstein's theory. That's how science works. <clears throat> so we got people saying science is on my side, other people saying science is my side. Science, people who believe in the vaccine says there's a lot of proof, science has proven the vaccines are safe and they're effective. We get other people citing their science. Science has proven that these people are harmed by the vaccine. So now they're both using science as their calling card. But if they're really using science, the way I would ask these people in more of a Socratic dialogue, I wouldn't say you're stupid, you're ignorant, because I don't know the science. I'm not a, 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 a I'm not a, what do you call it? Um, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know if that's a, There's a word, I can't speak that word, epidemiologist. I don't know. I will follow the consensus. But if I'm arguing with somebody, or I'm talking to somebody rather, who say is an anti-vax or a vaccine hesitant, I would ask them, well, okay, you've got your, your views, your opinions. What would it take to change your view? That's a scientific process. You've got a theory, hypothesis. It, what would it take to disprove it? Mm. What experiment could you do that would prove it wrong? And that that but that, that that setup of what would it take to disprove it is it, it's it's making it, it what's the phrase? It's it's a falsify. You make it falsifiable. This is Karl Popper's philosophy right? that science must be falsifiable. Right. If it's not, it's just religion. It's just a belief thing. Right. So if you believe the vaccines are harmful, what experiment or proof? could I offer you that would prove you wrong? And if you can't give me anything, then you're not being scientific. This is a way to trip up somebody who believes the world is flat, the right. flat earthers. Just say, okay, what experiment could we do that would prove you wrong? And they won't give you one. And yeah, I could think of many. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> just fly over the South Pole. But, you know, they'll, they'll, find, they'll find reasons why, no, that, that wouldn't work because I wouldn't believe you. But if you can't give me a, a, an experiment that I could do that would prove you wrong, then don't use science as your crutch because you're not being scientific. So I would just ask them. I wouldn't go and tell them all the reasons they're wrong. I'd ask them, okay, you're citing science. <clears throat> what experiment would you accept? 
as proof that you're not correct. Mm-hmm. So if you, you can't come up with that, then you're not a scientist. Can you imagine any uh, any people opposed to vaccination? Can you imagine a, a statement that they might come up with to, to answer that question? Like what what kind of proof they would accept or what kind of scientific study they'd accept? I don't know if they would know enough science to come up with one. So the next question I'd have to ask is, well, who do you find credible? Mm-hmm. And there's a whole hierarchy of credibility that I live by. No. Well, you know, and actually, I kind of want to unpack that that, yeah. that the, the hierarchy of credit, credibility too, um, because, like you, and I'm and I, I I am trying to interrogate why I feel so comfortable with this, but I, I my basic view is that I know people that have studied things in far greater de- degree than I'll ever be able to do, and they are in discussion, and debate, and and rigorous testing. With many other people like themselves, and they they have they are banging out the the, the consensual view on these things, um, and I'm just not, I know I'm not at able capable of evaluating a lot of what they're what they're saying, and, and given my skill set, so yes. so there's a, a a bit of I'd say faith in that in the in the system that produces that kind of knowledge, and yet the 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 counter argument that I'm I'm sure someone listening to me will say, well, you're just a you're just you're just showing your you know your docile sheep nature, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, and that that that's really the crux I think of what, a lot of what's going on now is that that there's a there's a kind of a conspiratorial mistrust of conventional consensual knowledge. Does that sound right? Yeah, I agree with that. I, mean, I think it'd be fair to. You, know, you and I both kind of revealed that we're on the sign of vaccines. We've like been vaccinated. Yep. My children are vaccinated. But I do have friends and other family members that aren't. And I haven't tried to convince them or talk them out of them or call them names or anything. I have tried to understand why, they're, why they have the views they have. But it's fair enough. They could ask me the same question. Well, what would it take to convince you the vaccines are bad? And so I have to be able to answer that. And I would have to answer that if the consensus of scientists in that field was that these were harmful, then I would change my view. Now, science is a progression towards better and better truth. Science is always looking for more. But when we, when Einstein showed that Newton wasn't right, 99% of what Newton had was correct. Einstein added a little layer on top. Newton didn't account for the precession of mercury around the sun what that means we don't have to get into it einstein figured that out so he added a little bit on top of newton doesn't mean everything newton said was wrong so a lot of scientific progress is just another layer of you know this little piece of data out there that doesn't fit the map so Mm -hmm. let's change the map let's not ignore the data the data is important the map has to fit the data but that's the beauty of science you find some outliers that don't fit your map that's when exciting science can get done Let's broaden the map. I think of so I think of the the phrase that I've heard Sam Harris use regularly, which is that like the antidote to to science that's not so good is better science, yes. not no not less science. Yes, you know? not no science. So let's, right. let's go back to religion or some other thing. Religion was just based on the science of four thousand years ago. We have better science today. Yeah. <clears throat> so it it comes to the consensus of the scientist, and that may be wrong, but the odds of them being wrong are far. Less or far 
less than the odds of this one person being wrong. So this is where I get my credibility index. At the top, there's the creme de la creme. These are the, and again, these aren't perfect, but the, the, the best science journals in the world, like the New England Journal of Medicine, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. These are the ones that have supposedly had the most peer reviewed of the studies. And then you have the second level journals. And then you have the scientific organizations like the National Science Academy of the United States, the Royal Academy of Science of the UK, uh, same in France and Canada. We've got these old bodies that have been around for 100, 150 years. They're far more credible than a taxi driver. Then you've got the, the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of the Science. That's like 200,000 American scientists. Their views are going to be far more credible in my view. So at the top, you've got you know, these, these great communities of scientists. And then you've got an individual who has studied in this field for years. Then you have an individual who's not studying this field, but is very well trained. So you can have a medical doctor, but he's not an epidemiologist who's been in the field for 10 years. So the medical doctor, I might give him a level three credibility. Mm -hmm. Then you've got individuals who have studied. Like I, I consider myself fairly knowledgeable. I give myself a level two. Then you've got people who are just putting out stuff on the internet. They're level one. Then you got level zeros. These are people paid by misinformation campaigns, whether it's by Russian trolls or Chinese disinformation or by Exxon to put up anti-climate stuff. These guys, they got a self-interest that makes them zero. So at zero, you got the paid trolls. Then you got everyone who's got a right to an opinion. There's got people who have looked at it themselves, done the research. Mm -hmm. Then you got people who are very knowledgeable in a certain field, like doctors. Then you got people who are very knowledgeable in that particular field epidemiologist and then you got the associations and then you got the journals that have done real tested peer-reviewed studies so if these people right at the top say that this is safe for you this is the best way to end the epidemic i'm going to believe them over anybody else they may get it wrong but there's a far less likelihood that they've got it wrong and if they do get it wrong they'll change their mind early on we said masks were useless they got that wrong they changed their mind Mm -hmm. Now we realize the thing is spread by aerosol. But they see they're just changing their they're changing their tune whenever they feel like it, Bernie. Based on the science. That's, that's sarcasm. Yes. <laughs> but you know, yeah, that, that's that's, that's, that's kind of the argument. Right. Yeah, no, I I I think that's you said that really nicely. Um the the, the credibility index is something that I, I wish maybe you should write a blog about it um or something. <laughs> too. I, have, I can send you a link. Oh, oh yeah. No, no, it, it would be good. Uh it's it's um I, I it's something that I think it's like we we need to it needs to be it, 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 it kind of instilled in schools more you know mm -hmm. that that people understand critical thinking, is critical thinking yeah underappreciated lesson and this whole fallacies and we haven't gotten to that the way we have fallacious arguments and gish gallops and all sorts of other things that people use to obtuse the whole concept the discussion no i i actually i cited you in a recent training i i said it, I don't know. I don't know. It might be on your website, but you had a, a, a maybe a two or three part blog that originally published on Elephant Journal, like yes. how to critically read a, a yoga article. Yes. Um, and and there's a few things about it that I, I was really impressed by. Um, a, you were very kind. You know, there was there was a there was a like a civil neutrality to your dissection of the argument you were disassembling. Um, but you, 
but you also just um, it was a kind of a tour de force on these fallacies. There's <laughs> a workshop on them. You were saying, okay, here's this kind of logical fallacy. Here's this this straw man argument. Here's this one, and it it, it really um, just uh, I don't know if you can send it to me. I'll, I'll include the link yeah. maybe in the um, in the show notes because there I was I was very um, helpfully reminded of 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 some of these things that I, I had forgotten about and was getting spun around. And, and as you say, feeling confused by, I couldn't, couldn't make my way through some articles or I was feeling threatened. I'm like, Oh, that person said they seem really credible and they're dissing yin yoga. And the whole premise of the argument was just faulty from the very beginning. And, and you laid that out very nicely. So um, again, super indebted to, to all the work you've done. Um, I know we've, I, 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 I joke that we might hit Joe Rogan level uh, <laughs> time, time scale. Um, yes. I think we're, we're getting into that range. So um, we should probably wrap up, um, but I want to thank you for your time. And maybe, you know, just if, for people that are still with us, I'm hoping people are still going to hear be here <laughs> listening, listening to us to the end. Um, you know, I, I, again, I just want to iterate that. I think your book, the, the Gita to the grail, um, is it from the Gita to the grail? Is that the title? Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it's a great book to read now. I think, uh, particularly because it, 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 like it's a distillation in a modern way of all these ancient myths in conversation, mediated by Bernie, but in conversation with each other. And I think it, if nothing else, it will stimulate the reader's consciousness and have them looking at things in, in new light. And, and, and that's the best function of reading, I think, is it's just, it, it can give you a, a different lens or multiple lenses of how to look at things and, and really sort of broaden and widen one's view about life itself in the, in the case of your book. So um, that's my plug. Anything you want to add to that? <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Yeah. By the time this airs, it may be reissued as Shiva dancing at King Arthur's court. So, okay. So I will, um, you know, what we, we can do is when it does air, just send me the, uh, I mean, I, notify me of that, and then I can update the link in in, yeah. the, in the in the in the in the podcast episode. So this will be evergreen when, and so either it's you get the old from the Gita to the Grail or Shiva's dance on King Arthur King Arthur's table. Shiva dancing at King Arthur's court. Shiva's Shiva dancing on King Arthur's court. That sounds uh, fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Bernie. It's great to have you on again. Uh, great to to so much. I'm ready to look look forward to listening back to this because. There's a lot of information you drop, and you're a font of wisdom and knowledge, and um, we're all better for it. But so, thank you so much. Thanks for having me back. It was fun. And uh, till the next time. Yeah, till the next time. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It was a very rich one. I personally got a ton out of listening to Bernie in this episode and engaging with him and hearing what he had to share. Um, it was a, it's a, actually a conversation I've listened back through twice now. It's that good. So I hope you enjoyed it. And if you're interested in anything we discussed, again, check out the show notes for the links that we referred to, but also do consider picking up a copy of Shiva Dancing at King Arthur's Court. And uh, there's a link for you in the show notes for that. But also there's links for all the articles that we mentioned in the conversation too in the show notes. So do check that out. Check out all of Bernie's stuff, whether it's your body, your yoga trilogy, if you're a yoga teacher or if you're interested in yin yoga, you will not regret looking at the complete guide to yin yoga. 
He's really a, um, as you heard in the conversation, he is a fount of wisdom and knowledge and, um, and, and just a great uh, leader in articulating the essence of these practices. So uh, do check those out. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Until then, please stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take great care.